The question I want to ask today, and this is what we'll discuss for this whole lesson, is, here's the short title, Can Aristotle Help You to Be a Better Christian? Okay, pagan philosopher Aristotle, can he help you to be a better Christian? The full title would be, Can Virtue Ethics That Are Knowable by the Light of Nature and Were Known by Aristotle can those virtuous ethics, which are known by the light of nature, help you in your Christian, uh, Christian sanctification? This is what we'll explore and answer. And since we are confessional and reformed, that means we're not biblicists, which means, yes, our truth, the truth that we, uh, what I mean, not, not our truth, but the truth we hold dear is rooted in the infallible scriptures, expounded from the infallible scriptures. But in expounding those scriptures, we don't do it alone. It's not, you've heard the saying, it's not my Bible and me under a tree. Rather, we expound the scriptures with our whole tradition. So basically, Christ didn't start teaching the church by His Spirit last year. He's been doing that for 2,000 years, for the entire history of the church. So we will explore this in dialogue with the Christian tradition at large, and especially our Reformed confessional tradition. So we'll see it from our Reformed forefathers and from Scripture, from Scripture first especially, and then in our Reformed tradition. So can Aristotle help you to be a better Christian? Well, the Apostle Peter told us in 2 Peter 1.5, add to your faith virtue. Pastor Jones preached on this some time ago. I alluded to it a few, few Lord's Days ago. But when the Apostle Peter uses this term virtue, he is drawing this from Greek philosophy. That's where the term came from in his time. This is where the term was developed. And it means moral excellence, as Pastor Jones pointed out. And if you study the etymology or the, the coming about of the meaning of this word virtue that Peter uses here, it was a standard term of Greek moral philosophy, we're told. And it was in the general sense of virtue, and it was taken up in the Hellenistic Jewish, Jewish usage, speaks of moral excellence. And as such, Calvin uh, John Calvin says of this term, I take virtue to mean a life honest and rightly formed, or moral goodness. This is what Peter is speaking of here. And when he would command us as Christians to add this to our faith, he uses a Greek philosophical term. Another term we want to think about as we get into, the, into this study, not only virtue, but the light of nature. And I'm not going to write it out, but L-O-N stands for light of nature. This is about six times in our confession of faith and then in our catechism, this phrase, light of nature. It simply means the light of reason. So in our catechism question, how may we know there is a God, the light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare there is a God. Light of nature simply means the light of reason. It's synonymous, Richard Muller tells us. 
in his dictionary that it is synonymous, in the dictionary defining these terms that we use in our confession. It has to do with natural revelation, so things that can be known naturally by right reason apart from natural revelation. So we've got two books here. One has an N, one has a G. This is nature, and this is grace, the book of nature and the book of grace. So we've been speaking of the last few weeks, remember, the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. These are known by the book of nature. Light, the light of nature concerns this book. And we know from Scripture, as we'll see later, that God has revealed much truth in the book of nature. See, God has given us two books. We know this. Not just Scripture. Yes, He's given us Scripture. And I've depicted it as being much larger of a book because there's more that it reveals. But the point is, both are from God, the book of nature and the book of Scripture. So, when we talk about light of nature, it is light, and it is light from God. Do the Scriptures come to us from God who is light? Yes, they do. And they're infallibly true because who is the source of the Scriptures? God. Who is truth itself? God who is truth itself. So, what He reveals cannot be an error because He is truth, right? And He, he cannot be liable to error. Just as much as what God reveals in Scripture is truth, also what God reveals in nature is truth. What God reveals in the book of nature by the light of nature is equally true with Scripture because it has God as its source. So, this is the light of nature. When we talk about philosophy, today we're talking specifically about moral philosophy. Philosophy is simply the study of naturally knowable things in their highest causes. Naturally knowable things. So whatever can be known from the book of nature in its highest causes, this is philosophy. And just like R.C. Sproul says, everyone's a theologian because everybody has some kind of idea about God and they do theology whether they realize it or not. In the same way, everybody's a philosopher. And specifically, everybody is a metaphysician. Everybody deals with metaphysics. That simply means uh, what is and how things are in their causes. We all think through this and speak of it whether we realize it or not. And since we're talking about a kind of philosophy, moral philosophy, I just want to give a few thoughts in case we have the idea that Scripture condemns philosophy. Because we do read in Colossians 2.8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul tells us, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. Some, especially within the last couple of centuries of the church, have taken this to mean that Paul is condemning all philosophy. But rather, we agree with Calvin that, uh, Calvin says, many have mistakenly imagined that philosophy is here condemned by Paul. Philosophy as such. But rather, as, as Matthew Poole, one of our Reformed forebears, uh, Puritan forebears, puts it, through philosophy, Paul means here either through the abuse of true philosophy, an empty deceit, according to the uh, uh, the, the abuse of true philosophy in bringing the mystery of Christ under the tribunal of shallow reason. So, if, if we bring the gospel of Christ under 
what can be known by nature. Just like, remember, the philosophers rejected Paul's preaching of the gospel. It was foolishness to them. The gospel is not something that you can know by reason, by natural reason. It has to be revealed to you. So if we subject the gospel to philosophy, that's an abuse of philosophy. This is what Paul is condemning. Or, Poole tells us, if we through erroneous speculations of some philosophers, then in vogue, which the Gnostics afterwards dressed up with Christ, or dressed up Christ with. So what he's saying is Paul is warning the Colossians not about philosophy as such, but either about exalting philosophy above theology, or promoting errors in philosophy, and trying to twist the gospel, pervert the gospel. John Gill, one of our particular Baptist forefathers, concurs with this. And you'll find this throughout our Reformed tradition. He says, not, uh, Paul's not condemning right philosophy or true wisdom, the knowledge of God, of the things of nature, of things natural, moral, or civil. What we're talking about today mainly is moral philosophy. Which may be attained unto us by the use of reason in light of nature. The apostle does not mean to condemn all arts or sciences as useful, uh, useless and hurtful, such as natural philosophy. That's what's revealed in the book of nature. Paul's not condemning that. In its various branches, ethics, virtue ethics, the four cardinal virtues that we've spoken of, Paul's not condemning that. He's not condemning logic or rhetoric. When kept within due bounds and in their proper place and sphere. So, let me pause in this quote from Gill to point out that concerning theology and philosophy, theology is always superior. Theology is revealed through special revelation, specifically the book of Scripture. For instance... That God is triune. That the one true God who can be known by the light of nature. We can know by the light of nature, the book of nature, that there's one true God. There's only one. He's the creator of all things. He is divinely simple, omnipotent, omnipresent. He's timelessly eternal. We can know these things, and we'll see that in Romans 1. God has revealed truth about himself in the light of nature. We cannot know from the light of nature that God just is the unbegotten Father eternally begetting the Son and Father and Son eternally breathing forth the Holy Spirit, that God is triune. This is known only by special revelation. It's known in the book of Scripture. G for grace, the book of grace. You've got nature and grace. So, Paul is not condemning the truth that may be known of God by nature. Rather, he's condemning the Abuse of it. He go, uh, Gill goes on to say, For instance, with these, speaking of natural philosophy, ethics, logic, rhetoric, etc., with these, script, the Scriptures themselves abound. So this is proof that Paul's not condemning right philosophy or ethics or logic. But Gill tells us rather, Paul means that philosophy or science which is falsely so-called, the false notions of philosophers, such as the eternity of matter and of this world, the mortality of souls, the worshiping of demons and angels, etc. 
basically what Gil is saying and what our whole tradition would agree with is men like Aristotle had much truth that they did know from the light of nature and we can't, uh, even though they did know truth from the light of nature, they also had errors mixed with it. We must purify those errors, we must reject those errors, but still realizing that they did have access to God's truth in nature and that we can make use of it and must make use of it. Benjamin Keach, along these same lines, says about Psalm 139, 14, remember where the psalmist says, I will praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. Keach says this about heathen philosophers like Aristotle. He says uh, concerning the human soul and what can be known about the works of God and the glory of God from the book of nature. He says, Nay, and also what knowledge have they attained of the God of nature? So, from the book of nature, what knowledge of God can pagan philosophers obtain? Those that have never seen a Bible, never heard the scriptures, how much can they know about God and his works? He says, It might be demonstrated, should I speak of natural and moral philosophy, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. He's saying they can know much about God and his works from the book of nature. They can't know enough to be saved by. We know that. They'll never be saved by only knowing the book of nature. But they still have access to truth about God. Keach goes on to say about David that David ascribes that wonderful knowledge which he had of the works of creation to his soul. No doubt he was well skilled in philosophy and was a man greatly given to contemplation. So, as confessional Reformed Baptists, we don't buy into the modern notion that Paul condemns all philosophy, but rather errors in it. And by the way, when we're talking about the book of nature and the book of grace, we're talking about philosophy and theology. Theology is always queen. Theology is always higher. And... Philosophy is subservient as a handmaiden, as a servant to theology. That's what Gill was talking about a minute ago. Okay, so that's philosophy. It's the study of things in their highest causes. Now, what specifically is moral philosophy that we're talking about today? Moral philosophy. Well, it's the truth about morality which is knowable by natural law. What can we know from the book of nature as to how we ought to live, what we ought to do and not do? Is there anything we can know from the book of nature as to what we ought to do and ought not to do? Well, Francis Turretin tells us natural law is rightly described by common and practical notions. You'll hear this term, common notions. These are common to all men, and we know them by the light of nature. Okay, or the light and dictation of the conscience which God has engraven by nature upon every individual to distinguish between virtue and vice and to know the things to be avoided and the things to be done. So Francis Turretin, one of our Reformed forefathers, is reminding us of what we already, it's already embedded in our confession, that in the book of nature God has revealed much, and he brings this home to us by our conscience. 
as to what ought to be done and ought not to be done. When you talk about something that ought to be done, that's law. That's not just a suggestion. There is such a thing as natural law, we know. And we know this from texts of Scripture, and we'll see this now uh, in Scripture. We see this in texts such as Romans 1.18-21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So Paul is telling us in Romans 1.18-21 that God has revealed enough in the book of nature that at the judgment day, No human being will stand before God and say, oh, I had no way to know there's a God and that I'm accountable to Him. They do know, and they suppress that knowledge. And they also know what ought to be done and ought not to be done, and he tells us that in Romans 2, 14 to 15. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, so when you think law, think Scripture, So the pagan who's never read the Ten Commandments, he's never opened a Bible, he doesn't know about it. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Paul is saying that pagans who have never read a Bible know enough about morality from the law of the the light of nature, the book of nature, that they know what they ought to do and ought not to do. And when they sin, they sin against their conscience, knowing that they're doing wrong. Or if they do it in ignorance, it's a willful ignorance, and they should have known better. And at the judgment day, they will have no excuse. But when they stand before God, and God pronounces this judgment, He will be righteous in doing so. It will be totally fair and just because of this. One of the Westminster divines, Francis Chanel, not sure how you pronounce his name, it looks like Chanel, so if anybody knows, please correct me. He says, we, he's speaking of Romans 1 here, 1, 18 to 21. He says, we read of the eternal Godhead in the book of the creature, that is the book of nature, we read of the eternal Godhead in the book of the creature, Romans 1.20, and therefore I prize philosophy because it is subservient to divinity. So philosophy, what's revealed in nature, is always subservient to theology. That is what's revealed in Scripture, the book of grace. Nay, that philosophy which manifests the eternal power and Godhead of our great Creator is indeed and in truth nothing else but natural divinity, this natural divinity is called the truth, Romans 1.18. Paul says that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This means that this is the truth of God that they're suppressing. He goes on to say, It is a divine truth because it doth declare all that can be known of God by the light of nature. Romans 1.19-20. He goes on to tell us we ought not to swear allegiance to any sect of philosophers, whether Stoics, Epicures, Platonists, or Peripatetics. The Peripatetics are the school of Aristotle and Socrates. 
We ought not swear allegiance to any one of these philosophers. All of them are going to have error. But we must select and embrace whatsoever is true and faithfully delivered concerning God by any sect, and the truth selected out of all sects is not vain philosophy, but natural divinity. He's saying that whatever truth Aristotle had access to in the book of nature, that is God's infallible truth. It's not Aristotle's truth. It's God's truth. And we ought to make use of it. This is not vain philosophy, but natural divinity. Divinity is theology. This is natural theology. It's revealed by God. He says there's something of the image of God and law of nature written in our hearts and consciences as is evident by common experience and plain testimonies of the word of God. And therefore the scripture doth not condemn all philosophy, philosophy, but vain philosophy. He cites Colossians 2 where we just read a moment ago. We find the same witness in Scripture, Psalm 19, 1-3. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Psalm 19 is teaching us that what God has revealed in the book of nature is universal, everybody in the entire world has access to it, and it's God's truth that God is revealing through nature or the light of reason, natural human reason. We can see this all in our Reformed tradition. Uh, Benjamin Keach, again, when he defines what is truth, he's answering the question, what is truth? And if you know Keach, you know he'll ask a question like that, and there will be about a dozen answers. Well, answer number five, what is truth? He says, the light of nature in man since the fall, to help him know God so far as to leave him without excuse. And he cites Romans 1.18, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You ask our particular Baptist forefather, one of the signers of our confession, Benjamin Keach, what is truth? He says, one definition of truth is what God has revealed in the book of nature by the light of human reason. The next definition he gives of truth is the true religion taught and contained in The gospel, Galatians 3, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? So Keech is saying, and this idea is embedded in our own confession, which we confess, is that yes, there's truth revealed here, and there's truth revealed here in Scripture. Remember, both of these are from God as their source, so they're equally, the the truth revealed in nature is equally true with the truth revealed in Scripture, though it is inferior to it because... And only because it can reveal less than Scripture can reveal. It's not that it's less true. It's just that it's less content. In our Baptist Catechism, question three, how may we know there is a God? The light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare there is a God. It's the book of nature. But his word and spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. This is theology or the book of Scripture. So there's truth known of God in nature. It's God's truth. It's just as true as the truth revealed in Scripture. But it is not saving truth. You can never be saved by the light of human reason. You have to hear the gospel. This is the book of grace. But as we'll see, when God opens to you the book of grace, grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it, brings it to its full perfection. In our second London Confession, 1-1, 
the very first, the very opening words, very opening paragraph and section of our confession. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature, speaking of the book of nature, and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet they're not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. So the book of nature reveals truth about God, but it's limited. It cannot reveal the saving truth about God, but that doesn't mean there's no truth in it. There is. There's much truth contained in it. The Belgic Confession, Article 2, tells us that we know God by one means, I mean by two means. In summary, first by creation or the book of nature, and secondly by the scriptures, two books. The Canons of Dort, which we're in wholehearted agreement with as confessional Baptists, puts it this way. It expresses that we can't be saved by the light of nature. But it goes on to say, yet there is to be sure a certain light of nature remaining in all people after the fall by virtue of which they retain some notions about God, natural things, and difference between what is moral or immoral and demonstrate a certain eagerness for virtue and to do good outward behavior. It's reminding us what we've seen already in Scripture that even though man has fallen and depraved, he still knows much truth, not only about who God is, but who man is and what man ought to do and not do. That's why pagan nations, including many Native American tribes before European contact, including many pagan peoples all over the world, this is why they have codes of morals where in many of those nations it was looked down upon, homosexuality was looked down upon, adultery was illegal, stealing was illegal, all kinds of things of this nature. How would they know to do that? They kept holy days, even though it wasn't the Christian Sabbath. They knew from the light of nature they're supposed to set aside a day as holy unto the Creator, and they did that. India today, Hindu, pagan India, has about 150 holidays. Holiday, holy day, that's where the term came from. Why do they do that? Because it's embedded and it's hardwired into their very being as humans and known by their conscience and by the light of reason that there is a God and they ought to set aside days to honor Him. God has revealed much truth in the book of nature. And it's plain in Scripture and it's throughout our Reformed tradition. And in this, these two books are not enemies, but friends. The book of nature and the book of grace are friends, not enemies. Grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. Kind of like this, when you finish high school and you, you get your diploma, high school doesn't destroy grade school, it perfects it. It brings it to the full maturity where it was leading you. Think about Christ's miracles of healing when he restored people to health. He, he didn't come to destroy man's lives, but, men's lives, but to save them as he's restoring them to a fuller humanity than they had in their sickness. Back to a a purer humanity, and at the end, for all His people, He'll restore us to the truest and fullest humanity. We're not becoming less human by being redeemed unto glory by Christ. We will be more truly human then than we are now, and our Lord Jesus Christ, as sinless man, is more truly human than we are as far as He answers more to the perfect idea of what a man ought to be. He's not less human than we are. He is more perfected in his humanity than we are. 
more conformed to what a human is to be than we are. And this is how it is with the book of grace. It perfects whatever we can know about God in nature. So from nature, we knew there was a God. If you reason through rightly, like many of the philosophers did to some extent, you will know certain truths about God. Even though many of them were clouded in their thinking and they went way off base, they had access to know there is one God. And somebody that shows this and demonstrates it is Aquinas showing that from the light of nature you can know there's only one God. He's simple, impassable, unchangeable, infinite, etc. When we're saved, we hear the gospel, we find out that one true God that we knew from the light of nature is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son is incarnate dies and rises for our salvation and ascends and will return and God grants unto us His Spirit. See, what we learned from the book of Scripture, the book of grace, didn't destroy what we knew about God from nature. It perfects it. It brings it to its full completion. This is why Colossians 3.10 tells us that we've put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him. We're being renewed in the image that God originally created us with. We're becoming more truly human and what a human is supposed to be, not less human. We don't go to heaven and become angels. We'll be more truly human after the final resurrection than we are right now because we'll be pure humanity without sin and do what we were designed to do without the hindrances we have now. So the book of Scripture teaches us that there are two books book of nature and the book of grace. These two books are friends and not enemies. The book of Scripture assumes and utilizes the book of nature, and it requires us to do the same. So, Holy Scripture uses the book of nature. Scripture assumes the light of nature. When we open the pages of the Bible, the Scriptures themselves assume that we come to the Bible with certain correct presuppositions if we're going to read it rightly. Presuppositions that are not taught in the Bible. One of them is the basic, one category is the basic laws of logic. Scripture nowhere teaches us the basic laws of logic. One of them is the law of non-contradiction. That a thing cannot both be and not be in the same way at the same time. That is known from the light of nature. Scripture never says that as such, but expects us to know that when we come to read it. So that when we read a, when we read a verse in Scripture that says God is a rock, and then we read another verse that says God is spirit, God does not intend for us to come to that and say, oh, well, the Bible says God's a rock. He must be a geological figure. And it says He is spirit. He must be spirit too. So somehow God both is and is not spirit and rock in the same way at the same time. I've heard people talk about that, talk like that. I heard a Baptist pastor one time say, and it's not a guy I know personally, thankfully. I heard him talking about this on YouTube, trying to explain the doctrine of the Trinity. And he said that God... Both is and is not Father, Son, and Spirit. Both is and is not. Not only is that heresy, it's horrible logic. So God expects us to come to Scripture assuming the law of non-contradiction, assuming metaphysical realism. That's a fancy word which simply means that things have real existence. 
that truth is universal. If it's true anywhere, it's true everywhere. They're universal truths because God embedded reality with it. That truth is objective, not subjective. It's not your truth and my truth. There is the truth. It's God's truth. And it is imposed upon us from outside of us. It's not up to us to decide what's true. It's up to us either to conform to it or we rebel against it. But the truth is objective. It's there. God made it. God is truth. And it's simply a manifestation, created manifestation of God who is truth. It assumes, metaphysical realism assumes that Things have natures and can only exist within the boundaries of those natures. Did you ever dream 10 years ago, and those of you who are older, did you ever dream 50 years ago they'd be arguing today whether a, a, a man that's born a man can become a woman and identify as a woman, a 60-year-old man can identify as a 6-year-old little girl? Would you ever have dreamed? This is revealed in the, the book of nature. Things have natures. All creatures have natures, and we exist within boundary of that nature. Aristotle knew that. And it's true. It's God's truth. The church fathers knew this. The Reformed Orthodox and our particular Baptist forefathers knew this. And this is embedded all through our confession. Metaphysical realism. Scripture assumes when you read it that you, ha- that you, take these, you have these things in mind. You take somebody today that doesn't have this, they've trashed Aristotle and classical metaphysics, they've trashed the whole uh, Christian tradition which has purified those metaphysics, they've trashed all that, and now they're arguing over things like 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's offensive and that's racist to say 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know why? Because they're rejecting the light of nature, and if we reject it, if we come with their mindset and we come to Scripture to read it, You think we're going to get it right, what Scripture means? No, we have to have right metaphysics to obtain right theology. Scripture holds forth, not not only does it assume the light of nature, but Scripture holds forth the intellectual and moral virtues of some pagans as an example to Christians. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, Remember how that Moses was overtaxed and everybody was lining up and he was, it was probably two million Jews in the, in the wilderness and Moses was hearing all their little disputes. You know what it is, you that have multiple children and all day long they're coming, want you to settle their disputes. Imagine two million people. It was wearing Moses out. His father-in-law Jethro comes and points out to him, this is not good, this thing you do is not good, and he told him to appoint delegates, and delegates under those delegates, until he subbed out most of his counseling, and he reduced his workload. Well, think about Moses. Not only did he read the Holy Scriptures, he wrote the Holy Scriptures, the first five books of the Bible. He received revelation face-to-face from God, Special revelation. He didn't have the book. He wrote the book. All the Bible that existed up to that time, Moses wrote it by inspiration, and yet he benefited from the intellectual virtue of prudence, and it is a moral virtue of prudence, from his pagan father-in-law, the priest of Midian, Jethro. Jethro had more moral virtue of prudence than Moses did in this area, and Moses benefited from him. And Westminster Divine Anthony Burgess speaks about this. I'll pass over this for now. But Stephen Sharnock tells us 
that in reason and moral virtues, many heathens have excelled us. Speaking of us as Christians. Paul implies in a certain way many pagans live more virtuously than the Corinthian Christians did. 1 Corinthians 5, 1, is it, it is actually reported that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Paul is telling the Corinthians, shame on you that you have not excommunicated this man who is living in incest. Even the pagans are more virtuous, morally virtuous than this. They wouldn't even tolerate this like you are. Scripture also holds forth pagans and Christians, holds them rather accountable for not living up to the truth we know from the light of nature. You can see this in Acts uh, Acts 17 at Mars Hill. You can see it where Paul argues from the book of nature. Okay, when they, you know, one, one of the issues at Corinth he addresses is supporting ministers. 1 Corinthians 9, 7 Paul, what are you going to do to prove we ought to pay the preacher? Well, he could open Scripture, and he does. But you know what he opens first? The book of nature. And he holds them accountable. Since this is taught in the book of nature, you, you ought to do it, and you're sinning by not doing it. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock. He's basically saying if the army pays their soldiers and they don't have to buy their own bullets and uniforms, how much more should you pay the minister of Christ who ministers to you? He's opening what we would call today common sense from the book of nature and telling them because common sense dictates this, you ought to pay your minister. Not only this, Scripture com- contains commands that require us to use right reason to apply those commands. So, for instance, okay, we might say, well, I don't want to have to deal with all this. I don't want to have to think through what is virtuous or not virtuous. Just give me a Bible verse and let me obey it. And I just want it spelled out in Scripture, chapter and verse. That's all I want to be responsible for. Well, that's impossible. You know why? Because every verse of Scripture requires right reason to think through and apply it. For instance, Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, be not drunk with wine. What does that mean? Well, that means you're not ever supposed to drink any alcohol at all, and I don't think so. Scripture's full of the right use of alcoholic beverages. So it can't mean that. There is such a thing as drinking alcohol for the glory of God, but be not drunk on wine. What does that mean? Well, you could go through Scripture. Scripture talks about men staggering, vomiting, having red eyes, speaking things out of their normal character, things of that. Those are all evidences of drunkenness, and all that is true. But as Puritan William Ames points out, after he defines drunkenness from a catalog of Scripture verses, he then says, but also in regard of the quantity when more is consumed than reason requires. So he's saying, if you want to know what it means not to be drunk with wine, yes, you can catalog all these Bible verses, and we should. But also, if it's more than reason requires. If you could drink a whole lot, you know, somebody that can just keep drinking and drinking and drinking, they're still talking straight, they're still walking a straight line, they can hold their liquor. But if they're drinking more than reason requires... He's telling us that is part of the definition of what drunkenness is. So what I'm saying is, every verse of Scripture that we would obey, including this one, requires right reason to apply it and to obey it. 
I'll give you just a few quotes and give time for questions. Uh, David Sitzma sums up that among the Reformed Orthodox and Puritan Orthodox in the Reformation, there were at least 50 books and a thousand disputations written on virtue ethics. And it was one practice of Protestant and Reformed theologians to comment on Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics as virtue ethics. One of them is Peter Martyr Vermigli. He wrote a whole commentary on it. And he uses scripture to purify Aristotle's errors, but he makes use of Aristotle. We can see examples with Vermigli. He says, Aristotle's four cardinal virtues contain almost all activities of human life. Calvin in Romans 12.9 commenting says there is here an antithesis usual in scripture when vices are first forbidden and then virtues enjoined. He's using these categories to explain and expound scripture. William Ames says in 2 Peter 1.5, the verse we started with, add to your faith virtue. He says that here the four cardinal virtues do seem to be prescribed and explained together almost by name in 2 Peter 1. Francis Turretin tells us the imitation of Christ lies in the practice of the moral virtues. And he says it's by a participation of moral virtues we're said to be born of God. Like this is part of the evidence that we're saved. And that's the case in 1 John. Owen tells us that if we would exclude the moral virtues and deny any virtues in the pagans, that it would overthrow the very, it would destroy human society if we couldn't distinguish among virtue and vice, even among pagans. There are several ways that we already use this, and we already think this way. We use the, the book of nature all the time in the service of the Christian faith. I'll only give you one of them. One of them is public worship, which we confess in our confession uh, 1.6, that there are certain circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. Ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. Prudence is one of the cardinal virtues. So let's think about today, our, our service today. Elements of worship are non-negotiable. God reveals them in the book of Scripture. There is no coming up with new elements. One element is the preaching of the Word. One element is the prayers. One element is the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper. God reveals these in Holy Scripture. But the question of what time will we meet, that comes from the book of nature. And by the way, what time we meet, if the elders called a time that was unfitting for us to meet, that was not according to right reason, it would actually be sinful. If there's no good reason for us to do so, if, if the elders were to call, you know, okay, we're going to start having Sunday morning service at 3.45 a.m. on Sundays, that would be wrong. Why? What I'm saying is it's not just morally neutral. Circumstances of worship are not just morally neutral. It, our choice in them actually is moral, and we can make a moral or an immoral choice. Why is it we have public worship at 11 a.m. instead of 3.45 a.m.? Makes sense. It doesn't take a lot to argue that. What I'm saying is it's not just up for grabs. Whatever we do in worship, okay, let's think about the tunes of the songs and thank God for men and women who are skilled in, in doing these things. 
Okay, Scripture tells us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Does it tell us what tune? Does it give us the notes for a tune or the tempo? No, it just says sing. Okay, so let's think about the tune of a song. What if we sang the uh, 119th psalm that we sang this morning to a circus ditty that sounds like a merry-go-round? Or we sang it to the theme song for Paw Patrol or something like that. A silly, light-hearted little tune. That would actually be sinful, wouldn't it? So, what I'm saying is we already do this. We already use the light of reason to make right choices about things. And God is simply calling us as His people, and we'll see more next Lord's Day, to open the book of nature and make use of it to help us in our sanctification. And we'll look more at that last time. I mean, next time. Okay, do we have any questions in closing? Questions or comments? Yes, sir. So the question is, how do we convince unbelievers that Scripture is queen? And that we've had the work of the Spirit in our hearts to convince us of that, right? Well, that's exactly it. They won't unless the Spirit convinces them. They ought to. They ought to recognize it. But as we saw, they suppress the truth.